Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, folks, and welcome to Friday's AOA. I'm Mike Pearson, sitting in for Mike Adams on this day after Thanksgiving, and I'm hopeful that all of you folks out there listening had a chance yesterday to get with folks you care about, whether it's friends or family, or at least have a little time for yourself and Think about all of the reasons we've got to be thankful, because there are lots and lots. I'm certainly thankful talking to all of you about what is happening in the world of agriculture. And we've got a pretty big show today. We're going to talk about sustainability in the pork industry. Then we're going to talk about the markets. Dwayne Bossy is going to join us. Inflation, crude oil pricing, and what to expect in the grains now that Thanksgiving's behind us. And we're moving towards the 1st of Jan 2022, which is hard to believe. And we're going to talk weather. Going to get an update on the COP26 get-together over in Glasgow, Scotland a few weeks ago. Ray Gasser, an Iowa farmer, had a chance to be there. But first, Dr. Brett Kaysen. He is with the Pork Checkoff, and Dr. Kaysen has been instrumental in preparing this new tool that the Pork Checkoff has rolled out. And Brett, sustainability, that is a hot, hot topic in the world today, and you're working to make sure the pork industry is right up on with all the trends. Absolutely, Mike, and thanks for having me here. And I would say at our core, when we talk about sustainability for farmers, it starts with fiscal sustainability and the ability to be profitable on their operations and then pass that family farm on to the next generation. And so I'm excited that we've been leading work here at the Pork Checkoff to actually measure, monitor, and report sustainability farm by farm across the country and prove that not only is it good for the planet, good for people that are on the farms as well as the pigs, but also there's a business case and a profitability case as well. There is, and, and that's the key component. We've got to be able to make money. Obviously, sustainability doesn't matter if we're broke. Brett, talk to us a little bit about this on-farm sustainability test you guys have put together. And so what we've done is we've actually gone to the farmer with uh, their real data and collected that from real farms, run it through a third-party validated system that then creates a sustainability report for their operation. And so when you talk about sustainability, you'll hear a lot of people talk about models and it's directionally correct. We've provided a different strategy here at the checkoff and said, well, let's just go with the real metrics that are available to us. Farmers use big data every day and they've done it for generations. So why should we change that when we talk about sustainability? Whether you want to talk about bushels per acre or pigs per sow per year, now let's talk about energy and propane use and water use and tillage practices. And so it allows that farmer to take a really hard look at their operation and number one, take credit for the great work they've always and have uh, been doing forever. I always like to say that uh, every day is Earth Day on the farm. So part of the strategy, let's take credit for the good work they're doing. But in typical farmer fashion, as they're getting these on farm sustainability reports with their data put into scientific sound bites, they look at it and then say, OK, we're doing a lot of things well here, but where's the opportunity for improvement? Typical farmers always wanting to drive towards that continuous improvement. And with that report comes what we call a skip report or a sustainable continuous improvement plan for them to evaluate with their leadership team on the farm. 
what's our next step in which we can move the needle around sustainability for our operation. So, Brett, you mentioned a number of things. When you were figuring up sustainability, you talked energy, you talked tillage, you talked feed consumption. All of these different data points are key to becoming sustainable. Tell us a little bit about the data you collect in order to compile this report. How much of the farm operation are you taking a look at? We're taking a holistic view of the farm, and I like to say we're taking a management systems approach to sustainability. You'll hear a lot about carbon each and every day. You'll hear a lot about greenhouse gas emissions and environment specifically relative to sustainability. But we need to take a step back as pig farmers and look in that we're actually managing a biological system that's that's surrounding this thing called a pig that we turn into this fantastic sustainable protein called pork. So we are measuring everything uh, available to us from the row crop field, the corn and soybean fields, the feed stuff in which feeds that pig in barn, all the way to water use and feed use in barn and energy use, as well as transportation uh, costs, expenses, and utilization. You know, what does it take to get that pig from the from the barn to larage? And so a multiple of variables. We're using the common swine industry audit data. We're using pork quality assurance data to prove animal welfare. And that's all based on our six ethical principles of we care that has been around for over a decade uh, in the pork industry. It is the framework for uh, U.S. pork industry from a sustainability perspective. And those six ethical principles really make up the values of the American pig farmer. And so lots of different data. The fun thing about these sustainability reports is we work with farmers. We'll take the data where it is and how it is. And so everybody has a different way to handle that. And so that makes it easier for the farmer as well. So when you say where it is and how it is, you mean in the sense that if I've got some kind of farm management software or perhaps I'm using Excel, I could just port that data right into the test. Exactly right. Whether you keep it in Excel, we can import that into the data set in which we're monitoring, managing that data, or we'll take it right out of the cab of the tractor from your My John Deere account. So where it is, how it is, to be quite frank, there's been times where we've taken a piece of notebook paper and entered that data on behalf of the farmer as well. Dr. Kaysen, I've got to ask, play a little bit of devil's advocate here. I hear concerns from growers when we talk about sustainability and particularly the type of sustainability that's measured. Uh, there are concerns that, okay, right now we're doing it for self-improvement, but one, five, ten years down the line, this test could be used to decide premiums or discounts potentially on the products I'm selling, whether it's corn or pork or, or you name it. Is that a justifiable concern for growers to have? It absolutely is. And I think that's on the horizon three and five years over the hill, as I like to say. And to me, this all comes down to the business case for the farmer being fiscally responsible to hand the next generation on, as I said before. But it's also about market acceptance. And I have a lot of questions from farmers that say, well, Brett, will they pay me more for my product? Those days are coming. Yes, I believe so. But then they say, well, Brett, what, in, what happens when those premiums go away? And I believe there'll be a day that happens as well. But it's table stakes for market acceptance. And from a pork producer's perspective, we've got to be in the game. We've got to prove our sustainability footprint. Otherwise, the modern day consumer, in which we do a lot of research here at the checkoff, says they'll choose another protein. And so it's twofold. Get the premiums while you can, but also keep that market acceptance and that available to, availability to you so you can continue to grow your operation.
And it seems like it would help benefit acceptance of broadly accepted pork raising practices. You know, as we get close to January, Dr. Kaysen, we're thinking about Proposition 2 in California, which was, you know, the public didn't trust the swine industry. So here's a way to show what you're doing and prove that it works. This is a trust and image play, a social license to operate, freedom to operate, to then talk to multiple masses of audiences, not only domestically and internationally, that pork is the sustainable protein of choice. And you can trust pig farmers that they're doing right by people, they're doing right by the planet, and they're doing right by their pigs each and every day. Brett, where can folks go to take this test? Yes, I would encourage folks to go to porkcheckoff.org forward slash sustainability to request their own on-farm sustainability report. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, Dr. Kaysen. Thank you so much. And folks, when we return, we will talk with farmer Ray Gasser about his trip to Scotland for the COP26 Climate Change Conference. So stay tuned here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. The conversation continues here on this Friday after Thanksgiving. And I would be remiss if I don't tell you before we go too much farther, American Ag Network and AOA are working to send two people to the DTN Ag Summit in Chicago, December 5th and 6th. We're going to be giving away two packets of two tickets each. Visit the website AmericanAgNetwork.com. A pop-up will show up right there, and you can get registered to win some tickets to the DTN Ag Summit, December 5th and 6th in Chicago. So do be sure to check that out, AmericanAgNetwork.com. As we move forward, I want to take a step back here in this next segment. Two weeks ago, we were all talking talking about the COP26 Global Climate Convention or conference that was held in Glasgow, Scotland. I've got a chance to talk to a man who was there. Mr. Ray Gasser is a farmer in southern Iowa in the Corning area, and he's been very, very active across numerous facets of the ag industry, and he has been involved with Solutions from the Land, the group that he got to travel with to Glasgow for the COP26 conference. Ray, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Glad to be on, Mike. Let's talk first, Ray, about Solutions from the Land. What is this group and how did it work to get you in with uh, all these bigwigs in Glasgow? <laughs> well, Solutions from the Land is a national and international group of, of uh, not only farmers, but, but economists, uh, university folks, researchers, you know, and from every walk of life. But, but um, our focus is really is, is about farmers and agriculture uh, being solutions to, uh, to climate change and being able to adapt and still feed people at the same time. When we talk about agriculture being a solution to climate change, mm -hmm. and I'm sitting here in the cheap seats in flyover country, I don't sure. hear a lot of that coming from our leaders. It seems as though ag is kind of always thrown under the bus as a cause of climate change. Did your message resonate with folks in Glasgow? 
Oh, yes, it, it really did resonate, and, and it's beginning to resonate more and more. You know, our group, um, not me personally, if I've only been involved for five or six years, but our group, Solutions from the Land, started, you know, going to the COP uh, meetings uh, about 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, there were no talk about agriculture at all, you know, and, and no representatives from agriculture. And, and uh, a couple of our leaders uh, were there. Uh, A.G. Karamur was there and Ernie Shea was there and Fred Yoder was there. And uh, they decided to, you know, separately and individually to work together to build this team of solutions from the land, uh, not only to, uh, to have some impact you know, on the COP meetings, but also to have men impact in the United States and globally about sharing that, you know, agriculture is, is, uh, is able to be a solution to climate change. Uh, we can protect the soil, uh, clean the air, clean the water, and feed people all at the same time. And that's been our message. And so, Ray, when you show up to an event like COP26 and you've got your team, you've got the solutions from the land people there, how does it work? Is it just a bunch of people giving speeches for days on end? Is there networking? Is there breakouts? What does a global convention like this look like yeah. from the seats? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, you don't just walk into the COP and, and be able to participate. It's, it's taken quite a lot of time, you know, for solutions from the land in our group to, to really have status, you know, at the COP. And, and for the last uh, three uh, COPs now, we do have status and we're able to uh, participate and attend the major meetings, plus all the side events. There's lots of going on in what they call side events, you know, side meetings uh, that that uh, people can talk with each other about sustainable development goals, about carbon sequestration, about the climate. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, there, it's busy every day when you get there. And uh, sometimes we hold those side events and sometimes we attend and participate. One of, one of our members, Fred Yoder, participated with Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary Vilsack, you know, in a forum uh, on Friday, the November 6th, I believe it was. Uh, I would like to share with you that the USDA's message is pretty much in line with with the message that we've had from Solutions from the Land for uh, several years now. You know, three pillars, you know, and, and uh, sustainable intensification is one of them. You know, an ecosystem integrity. Uh, the second pillar is, you know, adaptations and resilience. We have to be able to adapt and use the latest technology, you know, that we have in order to grow more using less and feed, feed the growing population. You know, and the third pillar is the result of doing the other two things well that, you know, we uh, sequester carbon and retain carbon. And we need to have agriculture and farmers be able to make a living too. We do. And the ability to be resilient is crucial to being able to make a living, right? I mean, all these, these pillars dovetail with each other, which certainly makes it nice. I've got to ask you something, Ray. I hear this from, uh, from friends of mine in agriculture all the time. We talk about mm -hmm. climate change. 40,000 people got together in Glasgow, Scotland to talk carbon. And it's an island, so they all traveled there with planes and <laughs> cars and buses and uh, motorcades and everything else. And there's this scent of hypocrisy of, of, around the whole issue. Do you think there is value in these global events and getting everybody in one place? 
Well, there, I mean, there, I think uh, some folks could use uh, maybe uh, coordinate jets and not have so many 400 jets flying in there. Uh, but, you know, you need to have a public meeting somewhere. And, and, you know, we've learned that, you know, Zoom works okay for a while, but we really need face-to-face. -face. We need that personal and face-to-face and, uh, -face interaction in order to really make a difference. You know, we're finding that uh, a lot of people are very concerned about the climate and, and want to know how we can adapt and adopt practices and technologies to do better. Uh, one of the big concerns that we have from solutions from the land and USDA and going to the COP was, was the European Union and their farm to fork program that really wants to do away with all the latest technology that we're able to use in the United States you know, in many other countries around the world. And, and we, uh, we would be uh, uh, not doing our job if we didn't share our message that we believe that's the wrong way to go, that we wouldn't be able to feed people. Agriculture wouldn't be able to feed people using technology that's 100 years old. And when you're making this, uh, this argument to people, the idea that the American way of doing things is, is perhaps the best <clears throat> way forward for addressing climate change and utilizing technology, was there positive response, particularly from Europeans, or are they dead set on their route? Well, we, we did meet with uh, European uh, farm organizations, and uh, they are thankful for our message, by the way. And, and I'll have to say that Secretary Vilsack uh, did a great job with the message that he was sharing about using all the latest technology and also using practices that have been proven to be successful to, you know, protect the soil and build uh, build soil health and, and uh, you know, sequester carbon at the same time. So now, Ray, with COP in the rearview mirror and a climate focus growing here in this administration in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. where do you think agriculture sits here in the United States? Are we going to see some stronger rules and regulations related to carbon or methane? Well, we, uh, you know, I don't know about rules and regulations, but one of the things that we're really promoting is the incentives to, to help agriculture, to help farmers and ranchers around the, the country uh, adapt practices and learn new practices and, and, and needing the, you know, and, and funding the research that needed, that's needed so we can, you know, uh, be a little more certain uh, if we adapt to practice that we can be successful at it. And, and the message is that regulations, you know, we are so diverse in agriculture and, you know, whether it's within a watershed or within a state or within the nation, there are so many ways to be successful in, in you know, sequestering carbon and cleaning the water and building soil health and feeding people. Uh, one size fits all regulations just, just isn't practical. And we talk about practicality. And and again, that message, the practicality that seems to be hitting the people it needs to hit, don't you think? Yeah, I, I believe it is, you know, and, and our legislators, you know, I've talked with several of our Iowa legislators, at least, and, you know, they get it, you know, and, and we've talked with them and shared our message about resilience. And I can't wait to share our, share our agriculture or our Iowa white paper, but, but Solutions from the Land two years ago developed a a, uh, a paper, a brochure on resilience. And, and uh, you know, should, you should look it up. If you go to solutionsfromtheland.org and look, look at the Res Renaissance report, uh, I think you'll find that there's a lot of good ideas in there, not only for the United States, but globally. 
Lots of things to look forward to. This space is going to continue to change in the years to come, and I'm glad we've got guys like Ray who are willing to take the time to focus on it. Ray, thanks for talking to us this week. You're welcome. Glad to be on. Uh, we have some great people working with us here. So. We'd love to hear about it. Thanks so much, Ray Gasser. And folks, stick with us. AOA will return with a look at the markets from Dwayne Bossy of Bolt Marketing. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson sitting in for Mike Adams today, and it's time to talk the markets. It's kind of a slow trading week, of course, with a lot of traders on vacation for Thanksgiving. But I wanted to check in with my friend Wayne Bossy of Bolt Marketing up in Britain, South Dakota, about what he's looking at on the big picture side of things. And Dwayne, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Always fun to talk markets with you, Mike. Let's talk first, Dwayne. We use a lot of crude oil here in agriculture. We use a lot of fossil fuels, period, when we talk about nitrogen and really just getting our crop in and out of the field, all these other things. And President Joe Biden earlier this week made some moves to address the price of crude oil, released 50 million barrels of crude from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Dwayne, is that going to do anything? Um, probably not, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I, I see the effort, but you know, 50 million billion barrels, that, that sounds like a lot to you and me. But uh, when I looked it up, that was about 8% of what the US uses in a full year. You know, so I mean, it'll help here. But and we what President Biden kind of got Japan to go along with China, South Korea, they're all going to do the same. So I guess when you add it all up, that that's nice and good. Depends on what they come up with. But what really matters, Mike, is what OPEC is going to do, right? They control about 44, 46% of the world's oil. And rumors have been that they're going to actually back off production so that what we've done here by releasing these reserves will not help one darn bit. And then when you watch the markets Wednesday morning, sometimes a big global market like crude oil likes to kind of thumb it to a government that thinks they can control prices. And uh, we rallied quite sharply that day. And I, for one, for me, I kind of think we put a low on the crude oil there. When you look at the total rig counts where we're at versus pre-COVID levels, uh, I think crude oil production is actually just, it's falling behind uh, behind demand. And I think we're going to have a, a bigger price in crude oil going into this winter and, and more importantly, probably even next spring. Oof, boy. And Dwayne, I mean, that gets everybody thinking. Of course, we've been scrambling to get hands on fertilizer this fall, get supplies locked down for this next spring. Prices have been volatile. What are you hearing from the guys that you work with? Are most growers being aggressive and locking in fall supplies, securing them for the spring, or are growers waiting? A little bit of everything, but when I hear... um talk to kind of the bigger co-ops in that. I'm finding out that they actually have record sales on the books. So no, I, I think the majority of farmers, now we nobody got it for the same prices a year ago, right? But when they heard this price was rallying, I think they aggressively booked it. And you know, the fall has been opened up just enough the last couple of weeks, a lot of anhydrous went down. So I, I think farmers did get it booked. And I think that's partially why I think they were very aggressive buying it, partially why the prices went up so much higher here in the last month, you could say, 
because everyone was buying it. What it'll do next spring, I, I really have no clue. Uh, some guys, myself, we, we didn't book a lot. We kind of were late to the to the dock there to board that ship and thought, well, we'll, we'll risk it a little bit. And then, you, you know, you get further north and we're pretty flexible. We kind of wait to see, well, one, how our spring's going to be, uh, what we plant in the Dakotas and kind of go from there. So I think I think farmers were very aggressive booked. But I don't think the market will know that, Mike. I think this is going to be a story all winter long and especially next spring when corn tries to buy the acres. Well, and, you know, I was looking out next spring, early summer contracts, corn 2022. We're kicking up against six dollars. Dwayne, is that enough of a price to to get some acres into this uh, corn lineup? Well, yeah, I actually just got off the phone with another client who pushes a pencil really hard. And he said, you know, this fertilizer price is high. But when you look at a cost per acre compared to your your cost per bushel you're getting at the end product he said it's kind of the same as we were before how many bushels it cost to, to get the fertilizer is what i'm trying to get at so uh yeah it's a good price now this is pretty smart individual when he bought the fertilizer he also said i need to push some of that risk now get rid of it leverage it so he sold some of the new crop corn so yeah if, you, if you're booking that fertilizer you kind of have to sell some of this new crop corn i think but uh I'm so friendly to this market because, like I said, I think in between now and spring when we get the corn planted, the, the market isn't going to be totally for sure how this is going to work out. And that'll keep this corn price very supported. You know, the first step, we got to watch what happens in Brazil. The second crop of corn, will they get the fertilizer? Do they need, do they start cutting back? I, I think the market starts talking cutbacks on fertilizer. We're going to assume cutbacks in total supply at the end and yield. So that'll be friendly to the market. It certainly will. And, you know, you mentioned you're friendly, the corn market. Dwayne, we've got ethanol going very strong. This crude oil price rallying certainly should help the uh, the blend rates for ethanol, wouldn't you think? Well, right, exactly. I mean, we've kind of touched base why I'm almost bullish the corn market, right? I, I think crude oil is going to go higher yet. That helps these ethanol profit margins. You know, their profit margins just through the roof. As long as they can get the corn out of farmers' hands, which is turning out to, it's going to be a tough thing into the end of the year because farmers got the cash. They don't need any more. And so the basis is going to be very strong. But I also feel like USDA is maybe off on last year's stocks yet. Uh, I think come the January stocks report, you're going to find out on December 1st, we didn't have as much corn as they thought. You know, this, the old crop stock is what I'm talking about. I, it just felt like we were completely ran out of corn when we started this harvest this year. So I think we could just have that, you know, 150, 250 million bushel just disappearance in the stocks report. And that, of course, would be a bullish situation when you're already somewhat tight. Will China come in and buy? I don't know. I, you know, we, that's up in the air. I hope they do. And if they do, then, then, you know, we'll be plus $6 pretty soon. Well, that's true. And, you know, we have seen some purchases come across the, uh, the wires here over the past week or two. We've seen China back in the buying market. We've seen Mexico come in. There's, there's global demand for American corn, Dwayne. Well, absolutely. And China's been out there buying Ukraine corn rather aggressively. And, And we knew they would do that. They'd buy from them first. And once their price either gets jacked up too high where it's not economical or they just run out of corn then they'll probably step up to buy our corn and now china has said they don't want to buy our corn above five dollars but guess what i don't i don't want to pay more than three dollars for gas either but (laughs) if i want the gas i'm gonna have to pay for it right and i think if china wants the corn they're gonna have to pay for it too but big unknown out there yet we'll see how their harvest wraps up over there too china you know it sounds like they had a large crop, but they've never told me they don't have a record crop. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to know what's going on over there. 
That's a good point. In China, everybody's above average, kind of when it comes to growing. It's the you know, <laughs> yep. sort of line of thinking. Let's let's talk about soybeans because that's also where China has been a major player. We've seen the excuse me the oil demand run like crazy here in the United States. What's your take on soybean pricing here as we get through this winter? You know, I, I'm so friendly that market too, but. You can probably even tell from my voice already that I'm not as bullish as the other commodities. That that's the soybeans are the the one grain that I'm a little nervous about. Uh, we need a catalyst. We need something to push us through $13 and make us go higher. That catalyst could be drought in Argentina and southern Brazil. Uh, we're going to learn a lot even come next week on this weather down there. They're getting into some critical stages in southern Brazil and Argentina, like I mentioned, getting a little dry. The forecasted rains are are on the lighter side. So if those rains end up being disappointing over this holiday, boy, next week, there could be my catalyst that I've been waiting for to shoot that market higher. But China's obviously slow playing it and hoping they can get all the way to the South America crop and buy that instead of buying a, a record amount from us. They're, they're really, we're behind on their exports and that makes me nervous. But, you know, one little shakeup and one little question of maybe they won't have the record crop there, then China will be short bought and they'll make up for it in a hurry. Then we'll be, be between 13 and 14 dollars. Dwayne, you know, we've got to look at this global soybean market here. We've got the United States growing a crop. We've got Brazil with a big crop coming out of the ground down there. As you've mentioned, when are those combines going to start to roll down in Brazil? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk lately that this crop is going in early down there and they're going to harvest sooner and that's bearish. I It's true. They are planting earlier, but it's about like I would compare it to us planting beans here you know yeah harvest always begins in the delta a lot sooner than it does in iowa right but the mass production same as in brazil won't hit the market really exportable until february time frame to be on february march even at the soonest um so yeah there is going to be some combines rolling by christmas and it'll get everyone excited but it's not going to be enough to be exporting the market so we have a window here but yes it is narrower to export our beans we have a window it is narrower than last year but only because they were late planting last year so we got this window we need that weather catalyst a little scare in south america and then china i think would be short bought and have to come in and buy our beans aggressively i mean it seems when we look for compelling tales in the commodity markets wheat really has one going on what's happening in the wheat market right now hey, wheat market is really interesting it's such a global commodity right and that's what's happening here it's it, it's a story in the U.S., but it's really the world story that we're following here. We got record high prices in Europe and Russia going on right now. Russia's wheat tax, remember, they started that about a year ago every week. They adjust their tax to make sure they don't run out of supplies. Well, they were at $70 per ton not too long ago, all the way jacked up to 120 And then, of course, the price is also record high. So you could say they're they're trying to ration demand there. The Really, the whole globe is trying to ration demand. It sounds to me like the end users around the world have maybe enough supplies to get to the end of the year, but 2022, they have nothing, and they're kind of nervous about it and probably should be. So, of course, then the price is you know, reflecting that, and we're kind of going sky high here, and a lot of questions about, well, how high can we go? Well, when you start rationing demand, you just throw a dart at the board. I don't know what it could be. It just higher for now is all i would say it's it's a fun thing because you know five six years ago all you and i ever talked about was well we got old crop wheat too much old crop wheat wheat can't rally that that's done and gone and wheat's actually gonna have to buy some acres next year 
All right. Lots of things happening in the world of markets. Dwayne Bossy, Bolt Marketing, Britain, South Dakota. I really appreciate you taking the time on this holiday week to join in and talk to us, Dwayne. Absolutely. Anytime, Mike. Well, thank you so much to Dwayne Bossy of Bolt Marketing. Always appreciate your insight, sir. And folks, stay with us when we return. We're going to talk weather, what's happening in the weekend ahead, and what's the week coming look like. Greg Solier will join us. So stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson sitting in for Mike Adams this Friday. But I tell you what, this is a very busy travel weekend as folks leave family across the country to return back home. How's the weather going to be? Wanted to get an answer to that question. So I invited Greg Solier, our meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness to join us. Greg, let's talk about this. People are leaving town. How's the weather going to be across the country this weekend? Yeah, that's right. Heading uh, from uh, friend and family, Granny's Place, back to the homestead. And for folks maybe just staying at the homestead because there's always plenty to do chore-wise even in holiday mode. You know, I've seen a lot worse in the way of weather here, but some 30 years have been doing this. This is a pretty easy going weather pattern for the back end of the holiday weekend around here. A couple of disturbances that may have a flurry or two with them or a sprinkle or two with them on the move out of the Red River Valley, the south, southeastward in the Ohio Valley. Those lake snows will be winding down if you're coming out of New York State, Pennsylvania and Ohio. That little system, by the way, coming out of the plains will skedaddle by Sunday out of the Ohio Valley. And there's another little disturbance right on its heels. So again, other than maybe a couple of sprinkles of rain, a couple of snow showers, big sky on the I-90, 94, run out of the Dakotas to the Red River. I think we're going to be in pretty good shape. You know, cold nights and chilly days, nothing unusual at all uh, for our part of the world here as we wind down through the rest of the holiday weekend. If you wanted action, and there's not a lot to speak of, it's in New England. And these weather systems, once again, there, my friend, are lighting up across the uh, Gulf of Alaska, ready to take aim at the Pacific Northwest, and especially Washington State here in the week ahead. What happens next? What's the timeline for this train of systems to work their way? Well, will they work their way into the center part of the country? Well, they'll, they'll probably bypass some of the drought-ridden areas. And typically what happens, you get this big, humongous, low pressure that spins its wheels uh, in the Gulf of Alaska and just sends disturbances in out of the central Pacific. They ride into northern California, Pacific Northwest. Then they have a tendency to ride through the southern Canadian prairie. Good news there with a recharge ahead in the form of maybe a little snow, a little rain, but they will be relatively moisture starved. The deeper moisture supply is cut off. It's in the Gulf, the Gulf Coast states, Rio Grande, and that's where the moisture plays out for this week. So we kind of have a large section of the country that'll see high and dry, except for the Pacific Northwest, especially the Cascades on westward. You go east of the Cascades, there has been not much drought improvement. We've seen the past couple of weeks some modest drought improvement, but offset by gusty winds, unusually mild to warm uh, weather. I wouldn't be surprised there, Mike, that we get some record-setting warm to set up over the Dakotas, parts of the Plain States, and slowly working into the Corn Belt locales here in the next 10 to 15 days. So as the guys on the Board of Trade Floor, as they used to be in the Board of Trade Floor, used to say, Dees, 
And welcome to Dees. There ain't much Dees weather going on, unfortunately, or fortunately, at least from a moisture recharge standpoint. But from a comfort standpoint, very mild and warm days ahead here in the first week to 10 days, maybe two weeks of the month of December. Greg, you said record-setting temps in the Dakotas. Are we talking 50s and 60s up to the yeah. 70s? How high is record-setting? I wouldn't be surprised we see a 70 crop up somewhere from the Cornhusker State on southward. 50s and 60s are record flirting territory values as you get up towards the Canadian Prairie as well and points on northward. Uh, and, and not much moisture going on. Again, everything's cut off south into the west in systems and the cold air that will typically ultimately with time make moisture will situate itself over the far northern and eastern Great Lakes into the northeast of New England. So you get the ridge, if you will, over the plains, the southwestern part of the country, worsening drought uh, expected there, warmth that continues on here in the weeks to come. And again, not a lot of moisture. And it's going to be probably Christmas, as we have talked about and will talk about and have talked about on this week in agribusiness. It appears to be somewhere the second half and towards Christmas week where the pendulum swings a little bit. That Gulf Alaska storm dislodges enough cold air to penetrate southward here across the Dakotas, Nebraska, the northern Corn Belt, northern tier of states. The warmth gets suppressed down south. And anytime you get that wide range of temperatures from north to south across the country, you know storm development gets going. And that will be the focus here, probably the second half of December to January, finally, to get some moisture going. Uh, hopefully, some of that will percolate into the grounds before we firm up and freeze them up. But as we say, the other boot and or hoof is going to drop from virtually no real you know, fall weather, per se, to a real wintry weather pattern that gets going within about a week's time frame here, uh, especially across the Dakotas, Nebraska, the upper Midwest and northern Great Lakes areas. Greg, I know you've been keeping track of the cooling and the warming in the Pacific Ocean, that oscillator between El Nino and La Nina. We were moving into a La Nina territory. Is that still the case? Oh, yeah. And strengthening. We've been in one for a while, but it is now a strengthening one, strengthening La Nina's at this point in the late autumn and approaching wintertime season tend to be, you know, it, it gets cold and it gets snowy around here. That's that's a given, but it tends to be a little more character building, kind of middle and back ended as in uh, kind of a compacted winter that actually extends into the uh, springtime season. So yeah, plenty of business. We do anticipate if you wanted to look forward, you know, some drought improvement with time this winter season to spread from the Pacific Northwest into the Northern Rockies, Montana, with time, and most of that's going to come with percolating and melting snow and the spring moisture pattern for the Dakotas, Red River Valley, the North, marginal improvement down through Nebraska, no improvement south of the Nebraska and probably worsening southern plains back in the desert southwest and southern California. And there'll be a propensity to gradually pick up the moisture and the accumulating snow events across the northern and eastern Corn Belt as we get deeper in through December, January, February, and probably at least from this vantage point, no sign of an early spring around here. The moisture pattern will be continuing on. That's maybe good news, but if you maybe from this vantage point have plans for some early spring work, uh, I just don't see it here in our part of the world. The Dakotas points to the east of the northern Corn Belt and points on southward. Greg La Nina, if it continues to strengthen, should be worried. Should we be worried about dryness in 2022 during the growing season? Uh, I don't think so. At least uh, we do anticipate a winding down late spring, early summer. Uh, dryness and drought and fires, yes, central and southern California, the south, even in the wintertime season now, in the southwestern part of the country, 
And we'll go into the growing season, the planting season, emerging winter wheat out of the central and southern Plain States areas in a worsening drought mode. So yeah, again, not the greatest of news in points southward and southwest from here. Better news as winter wears on, at least from a moisture gain standpoint, here across the Dakotas and points southeastward. Yeah. Well, I sure appreciate you keeping an eye on the weather, Greg, and keeping us all informed. Anytime, my friend. And folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA. Mike Adams will return on Monday. Thanks for being with us and have a fantastic weekend. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.